Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I am so excited to announce that I've teamed up with Mark Nathan to bring you The Consumer VC Summit. It's going to be from October 13th through 15th, and will be three days of discussions, talks, from some of the top investors in CPG. So some of the industries we're going to be focusing on are food and bev, beauty and personal care, femtech, cannabis. There's going to be also lots of networking opportunities. And if you're a founder, we're going to have one-on-one mentoring sessions with investors. To get your tickets, head over to summit.theconsumervc.com. That'll also be located in the show notes. We cannot wait, and we're excited to see you there. Our guest today is Wayne Wu, one of the general partners at VMG Partners. VMG is one of the premier growth funds that invest in consumer brands. Some of their investments include Justin's, Kind Healthy Snacks, Quest Nutrition, Sunbum, Drunk Elephant, and so many other amazing brands. In this talk with Wayne, we discuss how he evaluates brands, conducts due diligence, and what it means to be a good partner to a company. Without further ado, here's Wayne. Wayne, thank you so much for being here and for coming on the show. How are you? Doing great today. Thanks for having me on the show, Mike. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So let's talk about the beginning. What initially attracted you to consumer brands and finance? I mean, it's almost like a a broken road on how I got here. So it's not a typical situation. So I started my career in public accounting. So I graduated from college in the midst of the dot-com boom and September 11th, sadly. And so I wanted to start in a place where I could really learn how businesses worked. And so I started at Deloitte in public accounting, got my CPA and really, you know, had great exposure to senior executives because quite frankly, they were forced to talk to me because I was part of their audit team and had a great opportunity to learn, understand how businesses work. I did that for a couple of years and then I, I went over to investment banking at RBC Capital Markets and worked in their San Francisco office as an analyst and learned how capital raising and M&A worked and worked across different industries from financial services, tech, healthcare, almost everything but consumer, in fact. And through a family connection, I got to know an entrepreneur in the automotive retail space and from an analyst got to become a CFO of a relatively large automotive retail platform. So we owned and operated franchise car dealerships. And that's where I really saw the power of brands. The actual difference between one car to another is actually pretty nominal. It's basically all brand driven. And it's basically the biggest badge that people have in in generally their consumer product portfolio of, of their own lives, you know, and consumers either play it up in terms of what type of car they drive or downplay it. And that's where I really saw the power in terms of the combination of brand and my introduction to finance. That's amazing. That's cool how you always had, I guess, an attraction to finance being that you started out your career as an accountant. So how did you end up at VMG? Yeah, so as I was in the automotive industry, it became apparent to me that that wasn't the end goal of what I wanted to do. I guess I went over into the automotive industry about 25 years old, and I did that for a couple of years. So around 27, I found myself doing a bit of soul searching of what gets me excited each morning. And I really thought about the combination of taking the operating experience that I now had from the automotive industry 
and combining it with what I really enjoyed about my time at RBC on the finance side of things, you know, middle market private equity really seemed like something that could be really interesting as I looked more into it. How I ended up at VMG was actually a very unique story too, is I joined an organization called ACG, Association for Corporate Growth. And there's various chapters around the country, and it's essentially a networking organization for middle market private equity investors. And then there's like lenders, lawyers, and CFOs of companies and things of that nature. So I applied for membership in the San Francisco chapter. And after a few interviews, you get accepted and they have a luncheon where new members introduce themselves. So it was probably a couple hundred people at this luncheon. And I made a speech of, hey, I'm Wayne Wu, I'm CFO of this automotive organization. But having said that, I'm looking for a junior role at a middle market private equity firm. If you're interested, and I, I gave my, my, my experience of public accounting, investment banking, operating. I'm only 27 years old and I'll take any job, just give me a shot. And one of the founders of VMG gave me her business card and I'd been interviewing in a number of different places, but you know, really loved the VMG proposition in its very early stages, you know, just to triangulate timing. This was late 2007 and VMG had just had its final close of the first fund of VMG the summer of 2007. That's amazing. So since you were interviewing other places, what really stood out at VMG? And we'd love to kind of think about how you think about like the value proposition or how you think that VMG stands out from the rest of the market. Well, I saw, again, I saw the power of brands in the automotive industry and I love that they were focused on something that I had been introduced to that I saw the power of from the automotive sector. You know, I know it's cliche to say it was really in large part the people. And what I found it was a really quiet confidence in the folks I met at VMG who had recently, you know, just had its final close of its first fund. Some small things where I found as I interviewed at other shops that people seemed to need to like puff their chests out a little bit more, or they felt a need to dress really formally, you know, because I think almost like looking the part, if you will. And VMG was unique in that the confidence was there, even though it was a brand new fund. People dressed relatively casually because you could see it come through where they didn't feel like they needed to go out of their way trying to impress somebody by what kind of suit jacket they wore or otherwise. And I love that there was real clarity in the strategy. I found as I interviewed at other shops, it just didn't seem differentiated. I interviewed at some generalist firms, some that focused on financial services, some in real estate, but the clarity of the strategy was just not there. And I wanted to be part of something entrepreneurial. What I loved about the automotive industry was just the working with an entrepreneur CEO and just the fast pace of building something. And VMG was in its very infancy and I wanted to be part of building something. And it was great to join that platform. I love that. That's amazing. I love your story about how you're introduced to brands and you saw the power of brands. I guess shifting to like the actual investment side, how do you think about brand authenticity and more evaluate brands just as you see them come in? We try to not overcomplicate things. A brand is really an emotional connection between a human being and a product, a service, or otherwise. And sometimes I think people tend to overcomplicate it. And for us, because we focus, you know, on our growth fund side, 
in branded consumer products. So branded food and beverage, personal care, beauty, pet food, pet treats, and the wellness supplement space, it takes the form of a packaged good. And to boil it down simply is, you know, are we seeing a branded product within these categories? Are they generating new trial? And then are consumers repeat purchasing? And are they telling their friends about it too, that they should buy it as well? And that really illustrates the flywheel of that emotional connection between a human being and the respective branded consumer product. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I was wondering how you thought about growth, both organic and also paid. You know, I've had a lot of investors say how they really pay attention to organic growth because obviously, you know, there's no marketing costs associated with it. But I had on Dan Graham who said he actually pays attention to pay growth in some ways more so than organic growth because you can then actually break down a system in terms of a scalability that, okay, this is the price that you actually are paying to actually acquire a new customer. I was just wondering about how you were thinking about these two things. I think oftentimes investors are too often looking for one magic metric. And there's a real art and science to all of this. And I think looking at what paid growth looks like, organic growth, retention, profitability on first purchase, how people look at retention between different cohorts on different products, what the sustainability of the margins related to the business that ties back to all of this. You know, there isn't one. I think you got to look at the holistic picture and try to ask yourself, what is this holistic picture telling us? And, you know, I think we've just been in the game long enough where we can pair that art with that science and have a good feel for what the direction the business looks like. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Thinking about a holistic approach. Now, what are some qualities in a founder that you like to look for? And just take us a little bit through your like due diligence process, if you don't mind. As it relates to the first question related to a founder entrepreneur, we want to see hustle and grit. In the categories we're playing in on the growth fund, the business was rarely started out of some type of business school project. It generally comes from an entrepreneur that identified a consumer need Oftentimes, it's from his or her own life where it starts as a passion to fill this consumer need that they found was just not met by something that was out there in the marketplace yet. It wasn't designed for exit or designed for scalability. It was designed to service something in their own life. And when you pair that unique vision that an entrepreneur has with grit and hustle and perseverance, that is something that we really prioritize. I completely agree about grit, how it's such an important trait. What are some trends that you're right now focusing on? I've had on investors that are very thematic into their approach. I know that at VMG, you of course have the categories just listed in CBG that you focus on, but just would love to kind of hear your thoughts about how you think about opportunistic versus thematic and as well some trends that you're paying attention to. I'm glad you asked that. You know, from a growth fund perspective, we're almost like counter thematic and we have an ecosystem driven approach. So as an example, the conversation never comes up in our shop on the growth fund side of we want to be in the plant based space. And then we start canvassing the universe of companies, develop a calling effort and see which one wants to take our money. That is not our approach whatsoever. So how we go about doing it is, you know, we're not focused on the deal. We're focused on supporting the broader ecosystem within the categories we play in. And how we define that roughly is you have the entrepreneurs, you have the strategic buyers of these type of emerging brands. And on the brick and mortar side of things, you have the retailers that sell these products. 
products. And how can we support all three of these pillars to help create a flywheel which grows a bigger pie? And we believe that through those rightful intentions and actions, we'll end up as a byproduct with making great investments as a result of those things. And so we're more focused on speaking to every entrepreneur, trying to help in each of those conversations where they get more out of it than we did. And over time, we see pattern recognition on, does that entrepreneur do what they say they're going to do? And they get to know us, we get to know them. And is there alignment in vision where it's almost like this natural dating process where it's almost like this natural progression in our relationship where we decide we wanna to partner together through an investment partnership where we can and help them continue to accelerate and not only building a great brand, but a great business. So you're not so much chasing like new categories per se, and then thinking like, okay, chasing new categories and maybe developing like a thesis around that particular category, right? I think sometimes you're already behind when you do that. Entrepreneurs are looking ahead. And if we have conversations with every entrepreneur that plays in the respective categories that we invest in, there's pattern recognition that comes from that. Entrepreneurs who are breaking through on the next generation of themes, that if someone's just trying to canvas a theme, they'll never see it. And an example of that, Mike, is we've become the most active investor in the nutritional bar space over the last 15 years. We've invested in Kind, Quest, Perfect Bar, Vega Head of Bar. We have Nature's Bakery Bars health warrior bars. When we made our first nutritional bar investment back in 2008 with Kind, we did not have a thesis that we believed in on-the-go snacking, meal replacement. You know, looking back, it seems like, well, we must have had this very clear thesis around less meals at the table, everybody's on the go, they're snacking throughout the day and looking to replace their meals because they have a fitness routine. In retrospect, it's very clear but if we were trying to be a thematic investor back in 2008, we probably would have missed all of this. In this whole time period, there's been a large sentiment within the investment community that the nutritional bar space is just really crowded and competitive, so therefore they just don't invest in it. But as a result, they really missed out on a clear consumer trend as a result of the attributes I mentioned. Yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense. It's almost allowing the entrepreneur to tell you about the trend that they're going for, or really actually them being the one explaining the pain point and developing the theme because they're the ones that are actually on the ground level not the investor. So that makes a lot of sense because I've heard it on this show both ways, folks that are very thematic and write out theses and are very kind of thesis driven. And other investors say, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the future beholds. That's really actually the entrepreneur's job in a lot of ways. And then you're betting if their vision is the right vision in a lot of ways. You know, on this show, we talk about founders that are located in secondary and tertiary markets. Maybe they don't have the investor networks based on those markets. Since especially in CPG, unlike technology, brands can really be created anywhere across the board. How are you thinking about when you're maybe sourcing or looking at opportunities? And on the founder side, how can they get in front of investors as well that are in these secondary and tertiary markets? I think the biggest advice I would give is hop on LinkedIn. And I think if an entrepreneur just spends enough time just kind of digging around a little bit on LinkedIn, I think they can get a phenomenal start through even hopping, you know, just visiting your podcast. I think they would learn about a variety of very interesting investors and other entrepreneurs. And then that could lead them on the LinkedIn. And I think they could start piecing together what that ecosystem looks like to start figuring out how to raise capital for their respective business. That makes a lot of sense. Now, 
how are you seeing, because I've heard it on the technology side, because this podcast covers both tech and CBG. On the technology side, I've seen, I've heard investors say that they welcome the cold email. I've also heard investors say, you need a warm introduction to get to me. I was wondering how you think about this thing. And also on Twitter, it's pretty polarizing from investors and founders, but would love to just hear if founders don't come from a warm or any investor network, what are some of the things that they should be doing? And how do you think about the cold email? Well, given our ecosystem approach and, you know, again, we're not focused on deal hunting. I think we're very open to it. You know, we want to help everybody. I just look at this from a perspective of how can we help others? And I actually respect the hustle of somebody trying to cold email or find other ways of trying to interact with us to to see if they can hop on the phone. And we love those conversations because I think to say that we can predict who's going to be the next great entrepreneur, like it may be the person that just cold emailed us. And we found that they remember the person that actually gave them a shot. And, you know, when they become the next big thing, when everybody's calling them, they remember who responded to that cold email, who tried to help them out. It may end up being their best friend who started another company that ends up being the one we invest in. And they still heard back. They still got the recommendation that, BMG was the one who responded to cold email, who tried to help in a very genuine fashion. I think that's really great that you're open for cold emails because I actually, I'm not an investor, but I do think that it's really important, especially to expand upon your network. Because if you're only getting deals or meeting founders through warm introductions, then you really are staying almost in your network per se. So I think that the cold email also like expands your network on some level. And I think, again, it doesn't go to the spirit of like, we as investors, we have an obligation to be helpful. I think there's too many investors that are just trying to take from the ecosystem as opposed to give back. And our philosophy is to give. And I think we owe it to entrepreneurs to respond to these emails and try to genuinely help them and not look at it and go, well, this is only worth our time, quote unquote, if it comes from this warm introduction from this other person. We're not really following the spirit of trying to give people a chance and trying to help. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really great. And of course, VMG is one of the most respected investment funds, which makes a lot of sense with that philosophy. Talk to a little bit about COVID. Of course, these are very odd times, interesting times to say the least. And want to know what the investing landscape's like right now. On the technology side, when I had on Ezra Galston, he was saying he invested in a lot of like consumer online marketplace type businesses. And he was saying how there was definitely a dip in terms of deals getting done in March and April, but now he thinks that it's almost up at like pre-COVID levels or even faster. But I would love to hear it from the CPG side and consumer brands. How are you just as a kind of a macro analysis, what's kind of going on in terms of the investment landscape? Well, from our perspective, because of our ecosystem-driven approach, we never saw a slowdown at all, which is very different when VMG started back in the great financial crisis of 2008. There was a definite, clear drop in deal flow, valuation, et cetera, during that time period. That is not the case whatsoever during the COVID pandemic. The flow is strong. Deals are getting done. Valuations are as robust and strong as ever. And there's just a lot of interest in the space by investors and entrepreneurs and the like. What were some of the ways that VMG has been able to build out their ecosystem and making that philosophy, I guess, come to real life? Yes. If you think about the different buckets, you know, on the entrepreneur side, it's conversations and whether those conversations happen in 
person, via Zoom, on the phone. There's a real commitment by every member of our team to make sure that we're spending part of our day trying to drive that forward and supporting not only the entrepreneurs within our portfolio, but those who are not. And not with a necessary lens of, are we going to invest in them next week? But can we be helpful to entrepreneurs in the categories that we invest in? On the strategic buyer side, which oftentimes many of our brands end up there with their next partner, we want to help them be successful with their emerging brand acquisitions, regardless of whether it's X BMG portfolio company or not, because they have the firepower to help take these brands to the next level and help bring healthier, better products to the consumers. And it's a high priority for us to help be a sounding board on how to keep these brands special and thriving within their portfolios. As it relates to retailers, we spend a lot of time, I, you know, I don't want to name specific ones, but we spent a lot of time with the leading retailers in the US, helping them think about their emerging brand strategy because how they handle an entrepreneurial brand is very different than one that's, you know, where they're interacting with a publicly traded CPG company and their very large and powerful sales team and, and their own vertically integrated supply chain. It's just very different. So we've supported retailers with various innovation summits where we're helping curate brands to come visit them in their headquarters that are largely not even from our portfolio. Again, we want to support other entrepreneurs. I think less than 5% of the brands that have ever come to these summits that we've helped put on are have any affiliation with BMG whatsoever. But again, helping brands, emerging brands become more successful at retailers and have retailers become more successful with those entrepreneurial brands. And then continuing to support through our podcast at Unfinished Biz, highlighting entrepreneurs that are still in the midst of that journey, that it's not all rainbows and unicorns along the way. Even for some of the leading entrepreneurs in the space, it's still very hard today. And to create that relatability where they can share those lessons learned with other entrepreneurs. Yeah. First of all, thanks so much for breaking that down. I think that's tremendous. And I love how you really look to help not only your portfolio companies, but really just the entire industry and the examples that you gave really, really resonates. And that's just awesome. So during the pandemic, of course, when you're meeting new founders, now everything's happening over Zoom. Has it been harder to establish conviction when meeting new founders or running due diligence? I've kind of heard this on both sides of the spectrum. Some folks think it's actually easier. Some folks think it's actually more difficult. But we'd love to kind of hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, it's been business as usual for us. In many ways, from an ecosystem standpoint, it's easier than ever because we spent so much time in transit before, either commuting to the office, on flights, visiting different entrepreneurs or trade shows or portfolio companies. We're having more conversations than ever. We can help more entrepreneurs than even before. And from a due diligence standpoint, you know, between our BMG growth fund that's focused on CPG and our BMG Catalyst Fund, that's an early stage consumer technology fund, we've invested in six new companies during the pandemic. So we've been extremely active and been able to do all of our due diligence virtually. And it's because of that sector focus we have. We know what we want to see and it's highly curated. If anything, we're moving faster than ever. Well, while some are, their due diligence and processes and path to conviction is slower, it's frankly faster. We're all at home, so we don't have transit time, and we can really focus on driving that deal forward so the entrepreneur can focus on running his or her business. I love that. Yeah. When I had on Nick Mendel at Amberstone, he was saying that 
First of all, he's been able to see and visit a lot more entrepreneurs than he typically would have. And actually been really helpful during diligence when you get, you know, a kid come in or a baby come in during a call or a cat walk across the keyboard, how the actual entrepreneur responds during these times and seeing if they're calm. And he's like, that's been actually really amazing because then you really kind of connect with the entrepreneur at a deeper level. It's been great to see people in their own natural environments meet different members of their family and have it just be less formal. You know, I, we spent a lot of time also interacting with like the investment banking community. For so many of them, I've been used to seeing them with, you know, triple Windsor knots and suits. And it's been great to see, you know, them dressed down a bit and, and what their regular lives look like. And I think it's created another level of connectivity, friendship and relationship. When I had on uh, Will McClellan, he told me, if you want to build a consumer brand, come to New York. He's based in New York. I've had other guests that say LA, you can make the argument that LA's maybe like the central locator when it comes to consumer brands. Want to know, I know you're located in San Francisco. Why is San Francisco so, I guess, interesting or consumer? Just would love to hear your thoughts around geographic locations. It's interesting. I mean, it's something I guess something to think about even in like a COVID world now of like where people are kind of everywhere and revisiting kind of like what preconceived kind of biases we've had in the past on that framework. But I think in general, the law of absolutes is always a dangerous thing. I don't think there's any one magical market where is going to make or break a company's success. It takes a village. It takes a tribe to do anything well, you know, to build a successful company, to raise a healthy, happy family. And I think as long as an entrepreneur is in one of these markets with the real deep ecosystem of people who are willing and excited to help. So whether that's in the LA market, San Diego, the Bay Area, Boulder, Austin, New York, Chicago, I think as long as someone's in one of those markets where there's ecosystem of talent to hire from and other entrepreneurs to brainstorm with, I think a company can be highly successful. I love that. And I completely agree that there isn't one point. I think in Will's case, when he was talking about New York, he was more saying that like, when you think about venture capital, you think about Silicon Valley and San Francisco, I guess, initially, but you should also be thinking about New York or other places as well. I mean, so many incredible companies that have come out of all the ecosystems that you've just mentioned, which is great. So what's one thing that you would change when it comes to venture capital? I think the number one thing is, I think there should be much more of a focus on capital efficiency. And I wish the investment community would not push forth their capital deployment needs, sometimes in front of what the company's needs are. And I find that the investment community often continues just to put forth of what they need from a fund deployment standpoint versus what's in the best interest of a given company. And as a result, the company I think sometimes when enough people dangle large sums of money in front of a company, they almost like continue to dangle candy in front of, you know, and at least my kids, I know that they don't end up resisting it after a while. And it's to the entrepreneur and company's detriment when they take too much money and they end up diluting themselves. They end up looking for ways to spend it. And it becomes this a bit of a vortex where they create a business model that inevitably needs more cash. They dilute themselves more and everybody has to convince themselves, investor, entrepreneur, management team, that they have to get to this inevitably much larger outcome in order for all stakeholders to win. And at BMG, we're big believers of capital efficiency and only raising the capital that a company needs 
in order to get to where they need to be and to not be in a, a, a rush to do it. And rather, what do you need for each step of the process and not let the tail wag the dog? And oftentimes the tail are investors who want to put capital to work versus what's in the best interest of that entrepreneur and company. Yeah, I completely agree. This is a conversation that I've had with multiple guests on the show where uh, one of them pointed to that in terms of billion dollar outcomes, it's very, very difficult in CPG, but there's a lot of outcomes that happen in maybe the 100 to 300 million range. So I'm thinking of when I have, when I talked to Logan Langberg at um, Imaginary, what he was saying is that he thinks a lot about growth versus profitability and when a company should become profitable. I know it's a bit of a balancing act. How do you think about growth versus profitability when you're either looking at opportunities or you've already made the investment? So it depends on the category. This is a very category specific question. So we look at it more holistically in terms of what's the path to profitability and not fooling ourselves about what that path looks like. It goes back to my art versus science dynamic. We've just been in these categories long enough to know what is the realistic gross margin expansion opportunity because it really comes down to gross margins. If you can't get to a business with industry level gross margins, you may never get to the finish line that you're endeavoring towards. So a big part of it for us is less about the absolute dollar loss, but what do we know based on our experience that the gross margin profile can get to? What's the TAM of realistically for that category? And can we build a profitable business model over time? One interesting data point though is we found that if we generally in our growth portfolio, if we haven't flipped from cash burning to cash profitability within the first two years of our investment, it's rarely turned out to be a good investment for us. It's something that we've seen to learn over time. You know, we're investing at the growth stage too, by the way. So, and what that is, I think that's a murky line of what, what is growth stage versus venture or early stage, whatever all the terminology is. I know from based on our portfolio that we don't get there in the first couple years. Again, that's a, I'm generalizing. It just generally hasn't worked out to as good of an outcome. And certainly we don't get the profitability by the end of year three. It just continues to diminish those probabilities and odds. And then it's category specific. There's certain categories that just inherently are probably not as quick to a path of profitability than others. Got it. That's really, really helpful. It's really interesting. I haven't heard that yet about that kind of two-year mark. If you're not able to get profitability, then how that can be quite significant in terms of the outcome. So my final question is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders that are currently trying to fundraise? Don't stop believing. I mean, it's not easy being an entrepreneur. Just the fact that he or she started the business already defying the odds. And it takes a lot of no's and you only need one yes to keep sticking with it and not being afraid to cold email somebody. There's going to be believers in you out there because I think there's a lot of investors like BMG that just, just respect the hustle. And if they keep hustling and there's real perseverance and grit, good things are going to happen not only through a successful fundraise, but also that'll help them persevere as an entrepreneur to build a successful brand and company. I love that. And I think that's a great piece of advice. It's almost don't be afraid to reach out. The, also, like the worst thing that could happen is someone say no, right? Whether it's a cold email or whatnot. Well, Wayne, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. This is has been awesome. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Mike. And there you have it. It was amazing talking with Wayne. I sincerely appreciate him sharing all of his insights. I highly recommend following Wayne on LinkedIn if you want to keep up to date. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. 
Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe. 